It's a good confession to sing. Because we believe it, we are going to seek more of what God has to give to us in His Scripture as we think together on His Word. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, our ushers have that available for you if you need them to bring one to your seat. They can do that. After Paul's announcement, I'm feeling a little guilty. Look at this weak sock game. I got nothing to offer you guys. If you are going to the women's tea or planning to, don't worry. My wife has a much better sock game than I do. The, uh, the activity that he mentioned was uh, just a fun way of, of the women to show generosity to one another. Um, we're encouraging you to go out and find some fun, kind of creative pair of socks, uh, something not too expensive, just a little gift that we can bring to the gift exchange, and then there'll be an activity whereby the, the ladies who are there will exchange gifts, and so uh, somebody else will end up with your sassy socks, and you'll end up with somebody else's sassy socks, and everybody will be sassy and happy, and I'm sure you have a great time. Um, we are making some changes to our, our Christmas tea this year, and we're taking some risks by doing that. I know that people by nature uh, like to do things the way they're used to doing them, and uh, so we're going to ask for you all to consider some of the reasons why we're making some adjustments to the women's tea. Uh, we felt like the women's tea was getting a little too pricey, and we really wanted to be more inviting to those who maybe would struggle to come, come up with 20 bucks for a, a women's tea. So we've cut the price in half this year. And we've also simplified and streamlined things a little bit. Not only is it costly to pay for your ticket, but can also be really costly to host a table and to put all the resources together to do a really creative table. And we've been really blessed over the last few years to have our ladies show great um, uniqueness and, and uh, to express their identity in their tables, and, and that's always been a blessing. But this year, each of our tables is going to be decorated with one unifying theme. So everyone's going to have more of a unified experience in this. And we're not going to be signing up for specific tables. We're going to have people just come to the tea, and then as you come, you're just going to sit. And we're going to let the Lord shuffle the deck a little bit. I know that uh, some people have been at the exact same table for the last eight or nine years. And if the women's tea is designed to help us have fellowship with one another and to reach out and get to know hopefully some of the ladies that you don't normally spend time with, then it's tough to do that if we are, even before the tea begins, shoehorning ourselves into that mode that we're so used to and familiar with. So we're going to ask you all to step out of your comfort zone a little bit this year at the tea, that you'd be willing to maybe go and do the, the tea with an open mind and to sit with some people that normally you wouldn't have sat with and ask that the Lord would build some new friendships and would help you to kind of cross some boundaries that um, you didn't realize were there before. Uh, and so I know that's a lot different than what you've, used to, you've been used to seeing, but a lot of the tea is going to be the same. We're still going to have a great time. We're still going to have that special recipe tea that everybody loves once a year. Uh, it's going to be a blast. We're going to have singing. We're going to have uh, a testimony that's going to be really great. So um, we would encourage you ladies to go into it uh, just expecting the Lord to, to use it in a different way than he has before. And hopefully, uh, coming out of that, uh, there will be an exciting new connection that you've made with somebody else in this church that you didn't have a great love for before, that you didn't have a great connection with before. So uh, thank you all for signing up. It's going to start next week. We pray that we're going to have one of our best attended uh, teas uh, we've had in a long time. And since it's a lot cheaper, it's easier also to invite a friend to the tea. And we would really love for that to become an outreach where we can show other ladies in our lives who don't have a church family that, um, that we love Christ and and that Christmas is about the, the gift that he gave to us. He came to this earth and humbled himself to take on flesh so that he might become our Savior. So let's, uh, let's get our Bibles open, if, uh, if you don't already, to Galatians chapter 3. 
In the passage that we studied last week, Paul mentioned a very interesting fact about the Scripture in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 3. He said, In the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so we see in this passage of Scripture last week that the Old Testament Scripture, because by this time that we're writing Galatians, the New Testament's not been canonized. So when Paul says the Scripture, he's talking about the Pentateuch and the Prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs. He's talking about the Old Testament Scripture uh, that the Hebrews had had for so many generations. These Scriptures preached the Gospel to Abraham hundreds of years before Jesus would even take on flesh, hundreds of years before He would die on a cross for our sin and be risen again. And so we're going to see today that concept in practice, that the Old Testament preaches of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in practice today as Paul shows us the foundations of the doctrine of justification by faith. And he does it from the pages of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Habakkuk. So we've got our scriptures open to chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 10 through 14 today. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Would you bow with me for a moment as we ask the Lord to give us insight into what we just read. God, we thank you for this incredible scripture, uh, which is free from error, which is sufficient for us, Lord God. I pray that as we study it together, we would trust you to direct us the direction we need to go, Lord. That you would give us wisdom and insight and that this word would not just be some external marker, but would instead be written upon our hearts so that every choice we make, every desire of our heart would be pleasing to you and reflect the things that you've revealed to us in your word. Let us have knowledge to the Spirit, God. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we read about the, the amazing things that the Holy Spirit accomplished through the people in the earliest days of the church, there are some certain individuals who stand out to us as almost like spiritual all-stars. And at the top of that list for most of us would probably be Paul the Apostle. If you think about Paul and the life that he lived and the radical transformation that God displayed in him, the way that he so powerfully spread the gospel to many different regions. He was one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary, that the world has ever known. Not only that, but he wrote a huge portion of the New Testament scripture. We, we often go back to his writings, even when we're not in the book of Paul, because he wrote so doctrinally, and he, he taught us so much about how we're to think as we approach God in worship. Though some of the things that he wrote, such as the letter of Galatians, that we have been studying, came by the inspiration of the Spirit and were therefore totally free of error, that didn't mean that Paul could say whatever he wanted to say whenever he wanted to say it, and it would be doctrine. It didn't mean that he was perfect in the way that he spoke. Everything that Paul taught 
and stood by needed to be compatible with Scripture. He recognized that even as the mighty Apostle Paul, he had a standard by which he had to live. And it's the same standard by which we have to live and think and believe. And so in Galatians chapter, 10, verses 10, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, Paul presents a series of four statements. Each one of those statements is immediately backed up by Paul by a scriptural proof from the Old Testament. So here we see in these verses a fantastic example that no man is to operate outside of, independent of, God's revealed word, not even the Apostle Paul. So he's going to teach us, and he's going to show us that all that he teaches us comes from his revealed word. Christians must hold to what they believe based on what the Scripture declares, not based on their own personal opinions of what we would like to be true. And so the first statement that Paul shares with us establishes the seriousness of the doctrine of justification. As he declares that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. When Paul mentions the law here, he's talking about the very specific law that is personified in the Old Testament. He's talking about the law that God gave to His chosen people, Israel, after He had rescued them from the slavery they had endured in Egypt. That law was given to set apart His people from the rest of the nations and the people groups of the world so that the world could see how different they were by covenanting with the Lord God, with Yahweh. That they were now holy and unique because of what He was doing in their lives. And their lives of following the law of God would have the contrasting effect of revealing to others their sinfulness, helping them to see how they were not walking in the ways that God desired them to walk. So as the Canaanites saw these Israelites and the way that they humbly obeyed the Lord, even when it cost them to obey the Lord, even though it limited some of their freedoms, that the Canaanites would see that devotion to God and perhaps their hearts would be moved to want to desire to seek after the Lord as well. But those who relied on this law as a means of salvation had a serious problem. Breaking the law came with very real and dire consequences. The wages of sin is the penalty of ignoring the law is death, a curse of lifelessness. If someone has not been set free from the impossible requirements of the law, they remain under this serious curse, a sentence of condemnation. We tend to use the word curse in our society in a fickle and trivial way, don't we? When we talk about curses, uh, we might talk about the way somebody utters rude words to somebody else. We call that curse words. Or when our favorite sports team hasn't won the championship for a few decades, we often explain it as some sort of curse that's on them. We think maybe they did something wrong way back in the day and now that's kept them from receiving the blessing of victory. But biblical curses were very serious things. And the most daunting kinds of curses couldn't be dished out by just anyone. Someone who's truly cursed has been declared guilty by God Himself, by the one true judge. Notice that Paul clarifies here, anyone who relies on the law, that word relies is a key term to understanding the wrong way of viewing works. Now if you're looking at the NASB or the NKJV or a couple other translations, the word rely doesn't show up there explicitly in the Hebrew, but it is implied in the way that the sentence is structured. The phrasing in the original language is those who are of the law. 
meaning that their lives are dependent upon the law, their actions and obedience proceeds from the law, those who find their identity in the law. So as you can see, when the writers of the ESV decided to include the word rely in there, it was to clarify for us that that's what the original writer was intending to, to communicate. That those who are of the law are those who trust it, those who put their faith in it, those who are counting on that law to make them righteous to such a degree that they might have fellowship with a God who is holy and pure and untainted by sin. When our ability to keep the law becomes the very foundation of our good standing with the Lord, then we're standing on shaky ground at best. Respecting the law and even trying to keep the laws is in no way sin, but when we come to rely on it for our justification, when we live our lives of the law, we're putting our trust in ourselves, in our own abilities, instead of putting our faith and trust in God where it belongs. <clears throat> Paul does not, however, want us to simply take his word for it. He takes the time to show us that a wrong view of the law will result in our curse by referring to us to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that clearly teaches this concept. So Paul says, for it is written. That's a marker that should draw our attention to the fact that he's walking us back to the Old Testament law. He's, he's saying, there is scriptural evidence here for what I'm about to teach you and tell you. He says, for it is written in Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And it may seem as though Paul is adding a word there. If you look very carefully, Paul says, He who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But he's justified in adding that word all because that quotation from Deuteronomy comes after a long list, a recitation of all the laws that the people of Israel were expected to keep just before they entered into the Holy Land. Do you know what Deuteronomy literally means? It means to tell the law again. Second telling of the law is what it means. And it is a book that sums up all that had been revealed in Leviticus and in Numbers, in all the journeys that the Israelites had made so far. God had given them covenant. God had given them a way to live. And so Deuteronomy was a summation of that covenant agreement between God and His chosen people. And so after wandering in the wilderness for around 40 years, after they had been set free from the slavery that they had endured in Egypt, they showed faithlessness to God, so God made them wander for 40 years so that they would learn to trust Him. After that 40-year period was done, and God was ready to let them into the Holy Land, the promised land of Canaan, He stopped them before they entered, and they spent time they spent time going over the scripture that had been revealed up to that point. They told it again. And Deuteronomy 27 is getting to the end of all this list of curses that would happen for those who did not keep all of the law. If you go and read the whole chapter 27 of Deuteronomy, you're going to see an amazing scene. I'd encourage you, if you don't have something planned to read this week already in your quiet time as you seek the Lord and the Word on your own, to just go back and read 27 again because you see the nation of Israel divided up into two by Moses, their leader. And he has six of the tribes standing on one mountainside, on Mount Ebal. And he has six of the tribes standing on another mountainside, Gerizim. And they are close enough to where they can hear one another. 
And then they begin to recite. One of the sections of Israel, one of the six tribes, recites the blessings of Scripture, and they say it together in unison. They all say that they are obeying this covenant that is going to bring them blessing. And then those on the other mountainside recite the curses that are going to come if they fail to do so. And there is a great amen after this. And you can see what a, what a rousing and inspirational effect this would have on the people as they begin to prepare to enter into this holy land. So Paul's not introducing a foreign idea into the text when he gives us that little word, all. He's reminding us who are reading this text of what the Israelite people already knew. That to be under the law meant to be under the full law. It meant that they were expected to keep the law in its entirety. This Old Testament passage is evidence that the law was never given as a realistic means of justifying us to keep some of the law, a few of the laws here and there, some of the time, you know, when you feel like it or when it's convenient to you. That doesn't cancel out the guilt that we've accumulated by breaking the laws of God when we stumble and fall. It doesn't solve our sin issue to keep the law most of the time. Paul's not the only important biblical figure who thinks this way either. If you were to turn to the book of James in chapter 2, you'd see that the half-brother of Jesus feels exactly the same way. And this is a difficult scripture for us to process because it is so condemning to the heart of every man. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of it all become guilty of it all. So friends, this is serious business. You might not have ever committed one of what you would call the major sins. You might have never murdered anyone. Perhaps you've never create, you know, caused someone else to go to jail because of your slander or your libel. Perhaps you've, you've never assaulted anyone. But that does not mean that you're not guilty of those things. When we break even a fraction of the law of God, we become, by character, lawbreakers. We prove ourselves to be rebellious to the things of God. So we can't fall into the, the ways of man who often tries to categorize things and, and convince us that there are little sins, venial sins, that sometimes we do them on accident or we don't really know how serious they are. So we, so we commit them, but we're not really culpable for those things. That They hurt our relationship with God, but they don't affect our salvation. And then there's these huge sins, these real sins. Some people call them moral, uh, mortal sins that would actually affect our salvation. No, sin is sin. Sin is damning to us. When we break the law of God, we rebel against the giver of the law. And to be incompliant in even a small fraction of what God has commanded us to do is enough to make us need salvation from the Lord. If one could actually keep the law and be justified by keeping it, the law would be like a key to freedom for those who sin. But we know that the law never accomplishes that because Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.11, he says, and this is his second major statement on justification, he says, no one will be justified before God by the law. No one will be justified before God by the law. This is not a new concept, is it? We heard this already in chapter 2. In, in fact, in verse 16 of chapter 2, Paul says it very plainly, not once but twice. He says, by way of reminder, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Remember those words? So it's not a new development in Paul's explanation. 
But he includes it here for two specific reasons. He includes it here because he's building an argument that needs to flow from one point to another. And this understanding that justification doesn't come by the law is critical for the next two statements he's going to make. So it's by way of connection. He includes this idea that we should have already grasped by now. And, and secondly, he also shows us this understanding because he wants to prove it by Scripture. He gives us this Scripture in a quotation from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. This Old Testament prophet declared, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The statement that the righteous shall live by his faith is fundamental to our understanding uh, that Abraham had faith in God and that was counted to him as righteousness. You remember talking about that last week? In the book of Habakkuk, we have a prophet who is in some ways frustrated because he looks at the world around him and he needs God to reassure him because he sees wicked people. He sees people who are breaking the law and it seems as though they are getting away with it. So it hurts him inside to see God's law treated with such disrespect. And so he cries out to God for answers. Why, O oh Lord, does it seem as though your justice is being delayed or forgotten? And God responds to him that his justice will never be forgotten. He assures Habakkuk that the man who lives by faith is the one who will stand in the day of judgment. Habakkuk points out that the unrighteous, those who put their trust in their own deeds, have souls that are puffed up. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever gone to a house where you have a little tiny dog, and that little tiny dog can do you no real harm, but the enthusiasm of that dog causes it to puff itself up in such a way, usually vocally, that it makes tremendous amounts of noise, and it displays tremendous amounts of aggression, even though you could kind of just go and flick the dog away. It's acting bigger than it really is. And so that's, that's kind of like a visual of what Habakkuk is ex explaining to us here. Those who do grand works and think that those works are going to count for righteousness are like a little dog that think that its great bark is going to make up for its lack of bite. Relying on works leads to a pride that is contrary to repentance and faith. Any perceived gains in holiness by pursuing the works of the law is a step backward in pride because it just puts more confidence in ourselves, which is the last thing we need to be putting our confidence into. So the works of the law don't provide a means to purity for us. The best they can do is, is just help us avoid a greater defilement. The law tries to keep sinful people from being as bad as they can. And we're going to look at that concept in more depth in just a couple of weeks here. Man is truly depraved. We can't look ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm mostly good, there's just a few things God needs to fix about me. When we truly examine our hearts, we understand that wickedness flows out from us. And unless the Lord God changes us from the inside out, then we are doomed to die from the curse of the law. Therefore, the law often, often acts as almost like a referee to us. These laws that God gives us keeps us from being as bad as we could be, but it doesn't provide salvation for us. It doesn't wash away the things that we've already done wrong. Even though the Levitical law provided some means whereby offerings could be made in a symbolic gesture of repentance when the Jews would bring their, their lambs or their goats to the temple, the book of Hebrews makes it clear to us that by no means could those symbolic gestures actually justify 
our sins or make us right before the Lord God. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now that's, that's a radical concept for many of the Jews who are trusting in their sacrifices to cover them. They were trusting in the blood of those animals to wash clean their sins. And yet God pro- proclaims clearly through the mouths of the apostles that we cannot trust in any sort of substitutionary sacrifice except for Jesus Christ. Acts 13, verses 38 through 39 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, the law of Moses isn't a terrible thing, but it was not meant to unloose the shackles of sin from us. And so thinking wrongly about law and about our ability to keep the law is going to sabotage our hopes of having true, meaningful faith in God. In fact, relying on the law, being of the law, keeps us from being close to God because it only buffers up our sin and causes us to be puffed up and proud. That is why Paul goes on to explain in chapter 12, or chapter 3, verse 12, and this is his third doctrinal statement he makes. The law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. Those who live according to the law and hope that's going to justify them, that is not a way of living that comes from a heart of faith. The law itself does not reform what is inside of man. Obedience to the law does not necessarily make one depend more fully on the law, especially if that person is trying to keep the law by his or her own strength and commitment. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? It's not scripture. I'm not proclaiming it as a truth to you today, but it's something you hear all the time. And it means that when you're in a cultural environment or a situation that doesn't match your culture, you should watch what everybody else is doing and kind of conform to what they're doing so you don't make a fool of yourself, right? So if you're going over to your friend's house and they're traditional Japanese and their culture's very influenced by their heritage, You watch them take their shoes off before they go into the house. Don't go tramping into their front room with your work boots on, right? Take your shoes off, put them at the front door, out of respect for what they're doing. If they bow as a sign of greeting to you, you might want to consider bowing back to them as well. That's how they kind of shake hands, right? That's how they show respect. So you pick up on their cues and you follow that pattern. If they allow their elders to speak before they speak, then maybe you should do the same. You should show reverence and respect to the elder people in the household. Following those social cues might make you more acceptable to the culture and less offensive to your friends, but it wouldn't make you Japanese, would it? Those actions, no matter how well you copy them and follow them, do not change who you are on the inside. These are the limits of the law. You can learn the law. You can listen to it. You can memorize it. Then you could try to live by it. But if there is not something changing within you, then all of that behavior, even if it's patterned after holiness, will not make you a holy person. God isn't just concerned with shaping our behavior, friends. He desires to shape the very identities of His people. And mere laws can never do that. The law addresses the finite actions of men. It only dwells on what is material and tangible, while the Spirit must be addressed as well. God has shown a greater concern 
throughout Scripture for the heart of a man than he does for their material works. And so that is why Paul, in defense of this doctrinal statement that the law is not of faith, shares with us Leviticus 18.5. I love how Paul does this again and again. He's showing us by Scripture why he's preaching this way against those false teachers in Galatia. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them, and I am the Lord. Having a mindset that relies on works as foundational for life ensures that our works are going to be a curse to us. Because regardless of the level of effort that we put into our behavior, no matter how hard we try to live according to that law, I will not be able to keep that law perfectly. And that has implications on my life. When I rely on my works, I rely on myself. There's no way around this. If I trust my works, I will inevitably fall short because man's works fall universally short of the glory of God. This doomed result of never being able to keep the law, that is the personification of this curse to those who are under the law. And it is a contrast against faith. It is not something that we add to faith to be saved. It contrasts with faith. It shows us how beautiful and wonderful the gift of faith is that God helps us to believe and gives us grace so that we can be saved apart from our efforts and abilities. The works of the law can complement faith nicely. When you have faith, the law then becomes a beautiful song to you. It teaches you about the Lord God. It helps you to realize the ways you can express your faith to Him in a way that's pleasing to the Lord God. To the one whose faith is in Christ, the law can be a blessing, but it is never a path to salvation. There is only one path to salvation. And Paul points his readers to that path in the fourth doctrinal statement that he makes. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 again contains that connecting phrase, for it is written. Whenever you see that in Scripture, that means that someone's quoting Scripture that has been revealed previously. They're building upon the progressive revelation of God. And so he says, For it is written, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23. He says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So he points back to this declaration that was made so many hundreds of years before in Deuteronomy. Not every man who committed a horrible crime in Israel, such as murder, or rape, or something terrible of that nature. Not every one of them was hung upon a tree. But the elders of a territory who rendered judgment had the option and the right by God's law to make a public display of that lawbreaker, of that sinner. They would do it by putting that sinner to death, and then by taking their dead body and hanging either from a tree or from a pole that was set up in the middle of a public space so that those other Hebrews around there could see the fate 
of those who disrespect the law of God. That sinner then was, was hung and was on display so that their shame would show others how important it is to not take the law of God lightly. In other words, that body hanging in the square or hanging from a tree on the outskirts of town would say, essentially, heed the law. Do not ignore the warnings of God and do not bring the curse of death upon yourself. Now, they had other stipulations to that practice. They couldn't keep that body up in the tree overnight. The murderer would be either hanged from that tree or the pole just for the course of one day. Because if they were to leave the body overnight, God instruct them that it could have implications on the community. Uh, so Paul's argument here goes as follows. Paul shows to us that Christ was himself cursed. He's cursed not because he deserves it, not because he was a murderer or because he had somehow disrespected the law of God in any way but because Jesus knew that in order for our justice to be done, in order for our curse to be defeated, he had to take that curse upon his own life. The crimes that sinners like us have committed were put on his shoulders, and he bore them on the hill of Calvary. So Jesus willingly took upon himself the suffering that we should have paid, the suffering that was reserved for our sins against God. Christ was cursed, and he was cursed by God. God was the one who cursed Christ because God is the one who's responsible for justice, isn't he? And that is why in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He presents his son as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He offers up his pure and perfect one because he knows that we, as broken, soiled people, have nothing of value to offer up. So Christ was cursed. He was cursed by God. And he did so willingly. He went to the cross in, in, um, in, in complete compliance with the Lord God the Father had, had called him to do. And Christ was cursed by God for us. He wasn't cursed for his own glory, for his own self. He was cursed for us. So that the curse that we should have borne before God, the curse that should have resulted in God's wrath obliterating us, punishing us forever, would instead fall on stronger shoulders. Jesus was hanged on a cross and became a public display of guilt and of shame. Now you might read throughout Scripture this reference to being hanged on a tree, that Christ was hanged on a tree. You might think, well, he was crucified on a cross. Why is it saying a tree? It's because those who are saying that Christ hung from a tree, they're referring back to this Scripture that tells us that those who are hung from a tree are a curse. You see that in Acts 5.30. Acts 10.39, Acts 13.29, 1 Peter 2.24, where Jesus is said to have hung from a tree. They're referring to the cross as a tree because they see that as a fulfillment of what was said in Deuteronomy. There's such a terrible irony in the disgrace that Jesus allowed himself to endure for our sake. As the perfect Son of God, who was set apart from all other men, as one who had never sinned, as one who continually, for every breath of his life on earth, did what the Father in heaven called him to do. Jesus deserved to be a public example, but not of death, not of shame. He deserved to be a public example of glory and of admiration and of respect. But by taking the sins of the faithful upon his shoulders, Jesus became a public example of the exact opposite. He became a curse 
for us. He was treated with disgust and disdain, not only by the temple guard, but also by Roman soldiers, the enemies of Israel, who were the only ones authorized to carry out a death sentence within the borders of their empire. To be treated that way was the ultimate embarrassment. He willingly took that upon himself for us because of his great love for God's people. So that in him, our sin might be fully punished by the wrath of God. Now some suggest that perhaps the cross was even the primary roadblock for Saul to believe in the Messiah. Remember that the Apostle Paul, who's been teaching us here through Galatians, did not start off as a believer. He started off as an enemy of the church. He believed that there was no way Jesus could be the Messiah. And some people point to the cross and say, Saul, because he exalted the Lord God and desired to see Him magnified, could not fathom that His chosen one would be treated with such disrespect. He could not fathom that God would allow Jesus to suffer so. It's almost like Habakkuk, the prophet, who says, Why, Lord God, do these wicked people seem to triumph while your people, your beloved, seem to suffer? And they're doing what you call them to do. Saul could not see past the shame of the cross to realize that God's chosen one was more powerful than that shame. And that by taking that shame upon himself and by putting it to death, he was making an end to it. He was killing the curse of death. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul discussed the work of the cross as the greatest expression of reconciling love known to man. In those verses, he again addresses the extremely heavy price that Jesus paid to bring us near to God when he says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, who had never experienced sin, who had never committed sin against God. He made him to be the curse of sin, the embodiment of sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange where God takes away our wrath, the wrath that is deserved for us. He puts it upon his son and then takes the glory and the wonderful blessing of righteousness that Jesus deserves and he imputes it to our account. And allowing himself to be made into the physical representation of our sin and the curse of death that comes with our sin, Jesus was able to endure God's wrath and be crushed for us so that our sin could be crushed with him and put to death forever. With our sin destroyed by the perfect justice of God, we no longer carry the judgment of God upon our shoulders. All the things that we have made wrong by breaking God's law, Jesus Christ has made right by becoming a curse for us and enduring the shame and death that we had earned. Thus all who trust and believe in the Son of God will not perish but have everlasting life because the righteousness of Christ has erased our sin and put us at peace with God so that we can stand before our Maker justified, made right, seen as pure and guiltless and holy. Not because of our own works, but because of the painful, disgraceful suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf and how it accomplished it. Four statements of truth in four Old Testament scriptures that show how that gospel has been preached for centuries even before Jesus came 
And then there's one more verse that he wraps up this whole concept with. Verse 14. Why did he do this? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The same scripture that Paul uses to defend his doctrine of justification, these are the same scriptures that the Pharisees had to work with. They were the same scriptures that the scribes and the high priests could have looked upon at any time and did look upon and did teach from, but they did not see what they needed to see. Why? Because they didn't have that spirit. That spirit that is the whole purpose of this act of substitutionary atonement. That God would redeem us so that His Spirit could dwell in us. That we might be changed from the inside out. And the law would then become new to us. We could see it with different eyes. We could see it as not our means, our mode of salvation, but rather we could see it as the way that we rejoice in the salvation that God has won for us. Christians, we don't disregard the law. It is not of no consequence to us now, but it is different than the way that we would have seen it if we had not been given the Spirit of God. With new eyes and a fresh outlook on our justification, we can embrace the law as God's beautiful guide for our life, as a means by which we can walk, a guide that can direct us away from the terrible sin that can still heart our relationship with God, even though it has no power to take away our salvation. And so praise the Lord that we can have this spirit of power, this spirit of promise that has been given to us by the great justification that Jesus won upon the cross. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? We thank you, Lord God, that you have thought all of this so carefully through. You understand the mechanics of how salvation works from beginning to end, from top to bottom. And though it is often difficult for us to know exactly how twisted and bitter hearts like ours can be made new and whole, Lord, we look at your scripture and it gives us light It gives us understanding. I praise you, God, for the testimony of this man, Paul, though he was so powerfully filled with the Spirit. He did not take that for granted. And he did not say, well, church, just do it because I said it and I'm an apostle. But instead, he gave us Scripture to point us to the truth and to help us to realize that redemption is a story you have been writing from the beginning. No matter which book of the Bible we open up to, we're seeing some facet some element, some aspect of your desire to save sinful men. Your goal has always been to put the Spirit into us through your own means, through your power and your provision and not by our own. And so God, we pray that you would help us to walk in such a way that we're not depending upon our own strength. Lord, it can be such a prison to wake up each day and to think I've got to do enough to be loved by the Lord God. I pray, Lord, that we would not be deceived by our enemy in such a way, but that instead we would wake up each day and rejoice with this eternal truth that everything that I could ever do would not be enough, but it doesn't have to be because Christ has been all that I need. He has accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished, and it is His perfect and undefilable righteousness that rests in my heart by faith. God, help us to be able to confess that truth. Help us to trust you more day in and day out. And we pray this all through Jesus Christ, our strong Savior. Amen.